Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. Yeah, I did say 9, but I'm actually going to start with verse 3 for context. I apologize. (laughs) Yes, 9 through 13 is what we're going to concentrate on, but I'll actually read the entire text so that we have a, a framework. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, When will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to come or about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say what is given to you at in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Author and preacher Oswald Chambers once wrote, Perseverance is more than endurance. It is endurance combined with absolute assurance and certainty that what we are looking for is going to happen. Since you have your Bibles out, please, again, I want you to make sure that you're at Mark 13. And since you're there, if you wouldn't mind, if you're somebody who is okay to make notes in your Bible, I'd like for you to highlight or underline the first sentence in verse 13. And if you have a Bible app, you can obviously um, highlight that there and make notes. But I want you to underline or highlight the first sentence in verse 13. And this verse reads, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Not typically a verse that you would have somebody underline, right? And while you're there, if you would circle the expression for my name's sake, And then after that, go up to verse 9 and circle again the expression, for my name's sake. And with that, I want you to be clear that this right here is what this text is about. It's about enduring persecution because of our faith, right? And we do so for a purpose. And what is that purpose? 
for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ. In other words, this is on account of him. Jesus is saying because of him and what he has done, because of him and what he is doing and what what will be accomplished through him, believers after him will be facing persecution. That's the point of the text. That right there is actually probably something you should write down. The point of the text is that Christ, because of what he has done, believers after him will face persecution. As we've been exploring this part of the text, we need to understand that Jesus, in these verses, is foretelling of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, but he's also, as we have talked about, giving us an image of the future of when he will finally return, of the difficulty that that encompasses that. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you belong to me, if you are my disciples, you will experience difficult times. You will experience persecution, not because of you, but because of me. How many of you were told that when you first were a Christian? Not very many of us, a couple of us, right? I think somebody left that out when they talked to me. but... But right there it is in the text. And the last couple of weeks, we've covered a lot of ground as we have been working our way through Mark chapter 13. And if you missed any of the, the two previous messages, you have missed quite a bit. And maybe at some point you might be a little bit lost, but hang in there with us. Right? But the good news is you can actually go back and listen to the parts that you have missed so that you have a context and a foundation for the conversation that we're having today. But suffice it to say, this text is about following Jesus in the dark following Jesus when things get hard, following Jesus when the world comes against you. Again, I want you to look with me at verse 13. This is not one you would typically want to memorize, but I think it's important for us to remember. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And I want you to realize this is not just some comment that Jesus is making, right? This is not just a figure of speech. This isn't, we can't dismiss this as hyperbole. This is a promise. If we're going to say that everything else that he said around this is a promise, that it's a promise of the future for AD 70 when the, when the temple was destroyed, and it's ultimately it's a promise of his coming, this is included in that. This is not a hyperbolic statement. This is not satire. This is a promise. A promise that Christ himself has made. And you will be hated for my name's sake. If you belong to Christ... We at some point, in some context, at some place in our lives or in our experience, we will be rejected, we will be hated because, not of us, but because of the gospel and because of Jesus. To which you might say, well, why? (laughs) Why would we be hated for following Christ? Because Christ is so loving and so compassionate and everybody loves Jesus. No, they don't. They don't love him. They love false images of him. But they don't love who Jesus really is. The the Jesus is revealed in the scriptures. We will be hated because the world hates him. Remember, Jesus makes this very clear in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. He says, if the world hates you, understand it hated me first. 
If you were of the world, he says, just in case you misunderstood, if you were of the world, the world would love you because it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you're not of this world. I have chosen you out of this world. The truth is very clear, brothers and sisters. The world hates Jesus Christ. And the Word of God makes that very clear. And again, we might, right, it might love the false images of Christ, right? The images of Jesus that never gets upset with anybody. Or the Jesus, they say, never judges anyone or anything. Or the Jesus who always talks about love but never talks about the wrath of God. The, the image of Christ who is always soft-spoken and tender and never gets upset. The Jesus who, who gently knocks on the door of a person's heart saying, please, please let me in. The Jesus who never offends anyone, the false image of Jesus, that's the one that the world loves. But brothers and sisters, if you have been following along in the, in the, in the gospel of Mark, if you read the scriptures, you see that is not who he is. He's not just some Jewish rabbi with a beard. He is the sovereign reigning king. Jesus who affirms the authority of the word. Jesus who demands our heart and our allegiance. Jesus who does not compromise and says that his word will never pass away. The world hates that Jesus. And because it hates him, it will hate those of us who follow him and seek to be like him. And again, look at verse 13. It's, this, is, this is not me, your pastor, saying this. It's not like I wanted to sit here and go, how can I like, get in people's heads today? This is what the text says. Right? Jesus in his own word says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Let's be very clear. This is an immutable promise. But it is true. And if we're going to be hated because of Christ... If that's the truth of the Word of God, it is clear in the text, then why do so many professing Christians, why do so many of us who say that we love Jesus, we're all in for Jesus, we'll follow Him all the way in, why do so many Christians do everything in their power then to make the world love them and avoid, to the best of their ability, being hated? Why do we go to such great lengths in order to be loved and to be accepted and to be part of the group? Why do we always seek to be loved rather than just accepting the fact that people are going to hate us if we speak the truth in love? And I'm not just talking about simply avoiding being a jerk, right? Because if you're hated because you're a hateful jerk, that just means you're a hateful jerk, right? There's plenty of those around us in all stripes, right? If you're just, if you're just a jerk, I almost said another word, right? If you're just a jerk, then you're just a jerk, right? And people, you, sh you deserve to be hated for that. Right. If you're mean and abusive to people and you don't care about them as individuals, then, then obviously people have every right to be upset with you. What I'm talking about is being hated for following Jesus and we're going where he leads and standing uncompromisingly on his word, the truth that he has spoken himself. Remember, the word of God is not, the words of Jesus is not just the red letters. Being God incarnate, all of the words are his. So why do so many people who claim to be Christians want to avoid being hated? It happens all the time, by the way. And it seems like the bigger platform you have, the more often it happens. There's a man who professes to be a Christian that my family and I had looked up to for many, many years. 
A man who seems to exemplify what is all right with his country and what is all right with a hard-working ethic, a, a, a hard work ethic. A man who seemed to be a great role model for my own kids. His name is Drew Brees. Always a hard-working person. He didn't make excuses for when he, when he fell short on the football field. And he was focused and willing to sacrifice for his goals and his dreams as a football player. And he was good at what he did, but he was also very humble. Right? He gave credit to the people that were around him for their success. He was a very likable guy. And then he was injured during his last season with the Chargers. Everybody thought he was washed up, and then he demonstrated that he not only has perseverance, but he had grit and strength of character to press on and find a way to get back on the football field. Because after he was traded to the Saints, not only did he recover, but he also persevered and became a Super Bowl champion to the point that, he, he's, that when he leaves, he will leave behind a, willing, a winning legacy in the Saints organization. He will always be connected with, with the Saints. They will never be rid of the image of Drew Brees because of what he has done on the football field. And we admired him, not simply because he was, he was that kind of a man on the field. We admired him because, we, because, we, because he seemed like such a good husband to his wife. Because we need more of that in the world. And he was a good parent to his children, which, again, we need more of that in the world. And, he, and most importantly, what we heard from him is he was a professing Christian and it seemed like that it was evident in his life that the fruit seemed to be apparent in his, in his life. He donated millions of dollars to charities, did all kinds of work to help the less fortunate in his community. And he was just seemed like an all-around good guy. And on top of that, by all accounts, he was humble and he was just really a nice man, it seemed like. He is what many people picture as a successful, a successful Christian man. What that looks like, what that ought to to be. And it seems that God had given Drew Brees a giant platform to speak on, to speak from, a, a platform from which to proclaim the truth, right? And he seemed like he was using that platform. But then last week, as we said, it's easy to praise the Lord when the sun is shining. It is easy to worship God when there is no fear. It's easy to talk about God and about being a Christian when things are good. It is easy to use your platform for Christ when that platform is not being threatened. Drew Brees was happy to use his platform for Christ until those in the culture and those in his own community came against him to turn on him. I don't know if you realize, but almost exactly a year ago, Drew Brees came under fire for a commercial that he starred in. It was a commercial about bringing your Bible to school, a worthy cause. He was encouraging kids, you know, through this commercial to take your Bible to school and read it at school. This is a good thing. It's an important thing. But there was a cultural issue that was associated with this event. And the issue was that this commercial was sponsored by Focus on the Family, a well-known Christian organization that works to spread the gospel all over the world, but also works to protect and to educate and to grow Christian families. Right? That's who they are. They exist. That's why it's focused on the family. Right? They are pro-biblical marriage and biblical family, and because of this, the LGBT lobby has deemed them a hate group. And because they stand on the Word of God... Right? They are told that they are hateful. Right? 
And because of that, the LGBT community, they, because they, they have this view of focus on the family, prominent members of the LGBT community began to criticize openly Drew Brees for his association to this group by making this commercial. And Drew Brees, in that moment in history, had an opportunity to stand up and lovingly, gently, but lovingly tell the truth. The truth about his faith and what the Word of God actually says about these specific issues. What the Word of God actually says. The Word of God that he's encouraging kids to take to school. But instead, the unexpected cultural pressure and the unexpected hatred from this community caused him to collapse and he began to distance himself from focus on the family and began to say negative things. And then he used scripture to justify his compromise, citing that his faith was about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so he was basically saying that loving your neighbor means avoiding telling them the truth or standing up for the truth. Drew Brees caved under the pressure because of fear of being hated by a visible, prominent group of people in his, in his culture. And then he threw a Bible verse out there to, to cover his tracks. We Christians tend to bend Bible verses to suit our own needs at times. But that's not where the compromise ends. Fast forward to June of the last year, Drew Brees said that he would never kneel for the national anthem because it's disrespectful to the flag, to the military, to our country, and to law enforcement. And he especially disrespectful because, it's, because this, this movement, this gesture has aligned itself with cultural Marxism. But by the very next day, Drew Brees completely had flip-flopped and changed his mind and was apologizing for his stance. Because the cultural woke mob and the cultural elites cannot allow a dissenting view. And so he apologized what he said for his hurtful words. And I realized, standing up with the flag, kneeling for the flag, that's not a Christian issue. But the reason why this has become a Christian issue is because underneath this, the cultural demands that are demanding our submission in this area are coming from a place that is patently unchristian. It is openly Marxist. It's demanding that we submit to the lordship of culture rather than our own lordship, the lordship of, of God. By the way, do you know why we stand for the flag? It's because you had to kneel before a king. Historically speaking, we stand for the flag because we are our own sovereign in our own country. But that's a side note. But this cultural Marxism is, is eroding the fabric of our country and even Christianity itself. In fact, it has infected the church. You're going to see this more and more throughout the country as the church consumes itself with, with what they call critical race theory. It's a powerful influence, an influence that forces people to comply. They put a lot of social pressure on people to act a certain way, and it forced Drew Brees to comply. In fact, it even effectively silenced people like, like him. Because August 31st, there was a picture published of Drew Brees in practice, and he had a sticker on the front of his helmet, and on that sticker was written a name, the name of Jacob Blake. Jacob Blake was the man who was, who was accused of sexual assault against his girlfriend, who was also the mother of his kids. Jacob Blake was also a man who had a warrant out for his arrest, and the police were called to his ex-girlfriend's house because she had a restraining order against him that he was in violation of. And she made it clear that she was fearful. This is a protective order that had to be enforced by none other than law enforcement. And so the police show up because she called them. 
And they attempted to do their job and arrest him, but he resisted arrest and fought with the officers. They tried to use less than legal, the lethal means, which is the taser, which to subdue him, but didn't work. He proceeds to get up, walks around to the driver's side of his vehicle, opens the door to grab a weapon, and at that point, police shot him. Drew Brees is protesting police, police brutality because of this man. This man who Drew Brees is standing up for is a criminal who preyed on his, on his ex-girlfriend multiple times. Drew Brees is standing up for a man because he doesn't want to be hated by the rest of the world. You see, he won't stand up for the real victim. The real victim who was repeatedly assaulted by Jacob Blake. And he won't stand up for the police officers who did everything that they could do to arrest him without actually injuring him and was forced to this, this end. No, Drew Brees has been effectively pushed into submission to culture's demands because he desires not to be hated. It is easy, brothers and sisters, to praise the Lord when the sun is shining. It is easy to worship, the, worship God when you're not in fear. It's easy to stand up and talk about being a Christian when things are good. It's easy to stand up for truth of God's word when there's no external threat and people aren't in your face screaming and, sh and, and, and yelling at you. It is easy to follow Christ when the cost is low. But what about when things get hard? What about when the world manifests this hate, this promised hate towards you? This is what this text is about, following Jesus, when the world and culture and even those who you love, because there's a promise of that as well, when even those who you love come against you. So again, let's look at Mark 13. And I want you to look at verse 9, and I want you to see that Jesus begins with, be on your guard. And if you remember from last week, this is the second of three times where Jesus uses the Greek word blepo, which means to be on your guard or to be aware is what the word means. This is the second time that Jesus is giving a warning that his disciples need to have their eyes open. They need to be completely aware. They need to be actively looking, actively watchful. And if you remember, Jesus just a few days before that rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, declaring by his actions that he is the Messiah and the reigning king. But he doesn't ascend to David's earthly throne. Instead, he, he pronounces judgment on Israel, the, the temple, and the religious leaders itself. And then Jesus, as he leaves the temple for the very last time, predicts that the temple will be completely destroyed. And his disciples are now sitting on the Mount of Olives with him, overlooking the temple complex. They can, they can see it now. And they ask Jesus, when will these things happen? And what are going to be the signs of when this will take place? And Jesus begins to answer their questions. And if you remember, I just want to give you just a short summary. If you remember, he answers the question in two parts. He tells them, you know, and, and tells them what the warning signs of the, the temple will be. He, and that begins in verse 14. When you get to, when you see the, the, um, the abomination of desolation, that's when you can know for a fact that it's coming very soon. But before that, Jesus warns them of things that will happen in the world around them that many people will mistake to be signs of the end. They're actually not signs of the end or the coming destruction of, of Jerusalem. Rather, these are chaotic and catastrophic events, the things that happen throughout history that people have always 
right, looked at as possibly could it be the end that have the potential to distract them from the mission at hand. Right? That was, and that right there is verses 5 through 13. That's what they're about. And, and so last week we explored what right, Jesus said about the goal Right? In the middle of this conversation about when these things will happen, Jesus gives us the goal that we are to keep our eyes on, the goal that, that we're to be focused on. And that goal, he said, is, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. This is the center point for the Christian life. This is what we all aspire to, no matter what the circumstances are. The goal and the mission of Christ, the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. This is the part of the mission that you, if you were in Christ, are called to. This is the mission that we are, as Christians are called to be a part of, the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. And if you understand this, then the rest of chapter 13 will make sense. The mission of Christ is the goal of the incarnation and the glorification of God through worldwide worship. And this is to be accomplished by the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. And he says then, this must happen. But the problem is, there are circumstances that happen in our lives, in the lives of other people, that people will just tend to mistake for the end times. Events and circumstances that people will look at, historically speaking, as, as signs of the end, that actually then end up distracting us from the goal at hand. And Jesus actually addresses two specific scenarios that distract Christians from the proclamation of the gospel. They are, number one, false teachers who leverage the chaos of current events to promote their teachings. Right? This is what we talked about last week, which is verses 5 through 8. False teachers will point to wars and famines and natural disasters and strife and all the things that are happening in the world and say, See, the end is near, now follow me. Hence, leaders like David Caress, Crasher. Jim Jones or the like. False teachers and false Christ have popped up throughout Christian history and they use the chaos of current events to, to support their claims and distract Christians from the gospel. Secondly, the second distraction that tends to cause people to focus on the end times rather than the goal of the gospel is Christian persecution. Because when persecution happens to you, it feels like it's the end of the world. Which is what Jesus talks about in this part of the text from 9 through 13. Jesus is promising that his disciples will face persecution long before the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. In fact, I don't know if you realize, but most of the disciples were dead before Jerusalem was destroyed. According to history, uh, Peter and Paul, I think, were martyred before 68 A.D., so they didn't live to see this end, so to, to, so to speak. And so by extension, as we see this text in its immediate fulfillment in AD 70, there is also a future fulfillment when Christ, when Christ returns. And as we wait for that, we must understand Christian persecution. And now this is going to sound like a really, really strange phrase coming out of my mouth, but Christian persecution is a normal part of the Christian experience. It always has been. I know that doesn't feel like it because we live in America, right? It's a normal part of Christian life. And it's been that way throughout history. That's why That's why Jesus is, was warning us, right? And why has it always been persecution throughout history? Because the world hates, the, hates Christ. And what we need to understand is the, the peace that we have experienced in, this, in our country for the last 200 plus years 
and the relative freedom we've been able to express our, our religious beliefs without, without worry of somebody turning the lights off or coming against us violently, the freedom that we've experienced from persecution really is, is a historical anomaly. You ask any Christian historian, they'll tell you what we have experienced is not normal. And so just because persecution is on the rise in our country, and just because we're not used to it, doesn't mean that the end for us is tomorrow or next week or 100 years from now. Christian persecution is not a sign of the end. It is a sign of what normally happens when unregenerate culture meets the light of Christ. Persecution is part of following Christ even when things get hard. So Jesus warns us to keep our eyes open, and then he says, For they will deliver you over to councils, and, they, and, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, and bear witness before them. In this text, Jesus is telling us persecution is coming from two places. From the religious leaders, from the religious world, and also then from the government. Two worlds we're very familiar with. Right? He says they will deliver you to councils. The word council here is actually the same word used for Sanhedrin. Right? And so what he's saying is literally you've been, you will be forcibly handed over to Sanhedrins. You see, every, every synagogue had its own ruling council of men who were able to make decisions, and they would settle religious and social matters in the community. In essence, they were able to enforce the law. The only thing they, did, they couldn't do is enforce capital punishment because the Roman, Romans prohibited that. That's why the Romans had to crucify Christ. And Jesus said that they will go before you, but that you will go before religious councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues. This is a historical, relevant fact. The Jewish rule of law was that a person was to be given 40 lashes, but they would give 39 because they didn't want to violate the law. Right? And but what you need to understand is that this prophecy was literally fulfilled in Acts chapter 5, verse 40. It says, and when they, the, the, the apostles, had been or when they, the, uh, the Sanhedrin, called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. You see, the apostles were forcibly arrested, drugged before the councils in the Sanhedrins, and they were charged, just as Jesus predicted, and, they were, and, and then over and over again throughout the first century, they were beaten in the synagogues. In fact, this happened to Paul five times, he said. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. He, ex he, he exactly was what this fulfillment was. That, that Paul himself experienced what Jesus said was going to happen. The religious leaders at that time were among the first to persecute the Christians, the, the disciples of Christ. Now, I don't think that we personally in this time have to worry about being arrested and being brought before the local you know, Jewish synagogue and worry about somebody you know, taking out a whip and beating us. But understand, there has always been Christian persecution at the hands of other religious leaders. It's a very common historical theme. Today, Christians around the world are being martyred for their faith by the thousands. Right? They're being oppressed by Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists right? in, in all kinds of countries. In fact, you might even be aware of that fact because the media doesn't really cover this anymore. The media is only interested in controversies that they can sell, and it doesn't. And Christians being slaughtered in other countries doesn't sell. It's not something people are interested in. But in Ethiopia, this summer alone, hundreds of Christians have been murdered by Muslim extremists simply for just being Christian. 
They're being systematically sought and hunted down. By the way, that's, that's real oppression. That right there is actual real systematic injustice. Or how about Nigeria? 1,200, 1,200. I, I want to say that again. In Nigeria, 1,200 Christians have been killed by jihadists in the first six months of 2020. 1,200. This is not just a Muslim issue, though, and not just an East or a West African issue. It's also Hindus and Buddhists in places like India as well. Christians are being marginalized and forced lowest parts of society and being beaten and abused and raped by religious majorities. Christians are being persecuted by religious leaders simply for being Christian. And this has been going on since the beginning. This has even happened at the hands of those who profess to be Christians. We all know the story of the Catholic Church and the injustices that it committed against believers post-Reformation and before. But this is not just a historical phenomenon. There's rising persecution of of true Christian followers by those who profess to be part of the the church now. There's a growing form of American Christianity that is pro-culture, pro-humanism, pro-politics, pro-LGBT, pro-Marxist. And they're beginning to come against those who aren't. They're not actually physically violent yet, but they are becoming verbally abusive, calling for the cancellation of people, calling for people to get fired, calling for people to lose their, work, their livelihoods. There's a part of the American church that has denied the authority and errancy of Scripture who now has adopted social Marxism rather than biblical orthodoxy. Pastors from the pulpit are talking about how the Christian faith is compatible with the slaughter of innocent children in the womb. I don't even know how those things even fit within the same universe. Churches who will yell and scream and protest with virulent hatred and malice against anyone and any church that dares to stand on the word of God, what it says about sexuality, what it says about marriage, and what it says about gender, right? Or the cultural myth of white privilege. There's a whole, there are whole churches and denominations who have given up historical Christian orthodoxy in order to adopt critical race theory and, and critical theories and identity politics and liberation theology. And what we need to understand is this is a growing phenomenon in our world right now. As persecution continues to rise in America, you will find Christians or Christ followers will be marginalized and persecuted by those who claim to be religious. It's already happening. So Jesus says, you will be persecuted by religious leaders. And then he says, and you will stand before governors and kings. The persecution of disciples will be not just from those who profess to be of God, but all those, also those who profess to be of Caesar. Again, these are words that were literally fulfilled in Acts 46, I mean 24 and and 26, as the Apostle Paul appeared literally before a governor, Felix, and a king, Agrippa. And ultimately, he went on before Caesar at Rome and appealed his case there. Not to mention how many Christians were tried in Roman, in, in Roman courts and consigned to imprisonment and death. Bless you. These words of Jesus were literally fulfilled during the lives of the Apostles and before the destruction of Jerusalem, 
But what we need to understand, these are ongoing truths. Christian persecution has gone on from the governments or from governments somewhere in the world the entire Christian history. Some government somewhere has been coming against the Christian faith and the church. And this kind of persecution is happening even today. China is destroying churches and arresting pastors and members of churches. Like China is openly hostile to the Christian faith. They're making it clear, you have no Lord except the state. North Korea executes people for witnessing. Russia has made it illegal to evangelize people outside your church. Our brother, Adam Young, he stood right here and told you, right, he could go to jail for inviting someone into his church. Governments around the world actively persecute Christians, including also the Western world too. Just recently, a pastor in England who rejoiced on social media that a pride event was canceled, he just said, praise the Lord. He had a police, had the police come to him and warn him that he might be breaking the law by offending the LGBT community by saying praise the Lord for the event being canceled, but that the police did nothing for, for those in that same community who were threatening to burn down his church. And it was all over social media. It wasn't just a couple of people. It was hundreds of people threatening to burn down the church. In Canada, there was a pastor last year who was arrested for street preaching, and he just happened to be too close to... Uh, a venue where there were too many LGBT people who were offended and they arrested him. Even in California, Vice President candidate Kamala Harris prosecuted an investigative journalist for exposing Planned Parenthood's illegal activity. Planned Parenthood was breaking the law by selling body parts of these, of these babies. Planned Parenthood has never been indicted, by the way, for breaking the law. But this journalist, this pro-life journalist, was. It's just the beginning, by the way. In California right now, we are told that you cannot be in church and sing. You cannot gather together inside to worship the Lord as the Constitution has provided for you to be able to do. And the government is coming after churches. You see, what happens is people will tell you that you're crazy, or they will tell you that, hey, you know, you're being paranoid. It's called gaslighting, by the way, when the facts are actually happening around you and you can give evidence to it, but people keep denying the truth, right? North Valley Baptist Church has been fined over $60,000 for having indoor services, right? And, and they're taking all the precautions that, that, that Walmart makes you take, by the way. John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church, has been hauled into court several times. In fact, I think they're meeting this morning in... in uh, in opposition to an order that said that you can't. And they've, they've had their lease for their parking lot canceled by the, by the county. They've been threatened to have their water and their power shut off. They've been fined by the local health department. And John MacArthur has been threatened to have to be thrown in jail himself a year for every offense. Why? Because the community wants to gather and worship God. In Pasadena, authorities are threatening the, the, the pastor of the Rock Church with jail time and anyone who attends that church. And then as we talked about in Newberry Park, Godspeak Church was fined for contempt of court because they continue to meet indoors and worship the Lord. Right. By the way, he's not demanding his parishioners come. He's not demanding that his congregation come. They show up. Why? Because they, they need, they desire to worship the Lord. The government of California is targeting churches for penalties and even jail time, right? 
And what is the crime? The crime is a desire to gather as a body of believers as we've, we've been commanded to. While criminals are being released onto the streets, rioters are being let out without charges, major corporations who support current cultural trends are being allowed to have customers by the thousands every single day. Not to mention protests can gather anywhere, anytime, in any number, and they can yell and threaten and harass without impunity. In fact, as I talked to the worship team this morning, Protesters today gathered outside of the hospital where the two deputies who were shot in Compton trying to block the way so they couldn't get care. And they're shouting, we hope you die. But God's people cannot come to worship the Lord. Brothers and sisters, something is deeply wrong with our nation and the government, the governmental persecution against the church over time will continue to grow. It is inevitable, right? As our nation continues to lose its heart for God and the gospel, as our nation continues to pursue caustic Marxist ideologies, as our nation embraces all manner of deviancy, as our nation celebrates the rights of, of mothers to, to murder their unborn children, the church and its stance on objective biblical truth will become more and more of a target because we will become the reminder of all they hate about themselves. That's what it means to be salt and light. Not to mention Caesar cannot stand to be second to God. That is why totalitarian regimes always outlaw Christianity because there cannot be any sovereign but the state. But this should not surprise us. And brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be a shock to us. Because this has always been the way of the world. We've just been insulated from it. Jesus promised that those who follow him will face all kinds of persecution at the hands of governing authorities. And in some areas, this persecution has been in eras, sometimes in history, it's been worse than others. right? And in some locations, it's worse than, than others. Our brothers and sisters in, in Egypt have faced horrible persecution as we've witnessed them being marched out on the beach and have, and have them and watch them sing hymns while they're being beheaded. It's a, it's a sign of, it's a normal sign of the Christian experience. And, I, and again, those words don't even want to come out of my mouth the right way, but it's the truth. But it's, it's not the sign of the end. And this is the thing we need to understand. We need to realize that, that persecution comes to those who truly believe. But notice Jesus not only predicted that persecution was going to come, he said, right, there's a purpose for this persecution. And this is, again, the part that we don't really think about a lot. There's a reason for the persecution. He says, it is for my sake. You see, Christians will not only be persecuted on the account of Christ, they will be persecuted for Christ. It's not just for Christ. It's for the cause of Christ. Because I want you to notice, right? He says you will be persecuted for, for, for his sake, to bear witness before them. To bear witness before them. There's a purpose, there's a reason why God in his sovereignty allows it to happen. They're to bear witness before the religious leaders and the governmental leaders. They're going to be persecuted on account for Christ for the purpose of being able to witness the gospel of Jesus Christ to these leaders. 
We need to stop and let that sink in for a minute. Because notice right after what he says, verse 10, this is, the, this is where we come to the goal. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. That's the goal. We need to stop for a moment and consider the implications of what Jesus is actually saying here. Jesus predicted the persecution of believers and said that this was coming for a purpose. And that purpose was that Christians would be able to bear witness to those that are persecuting them. Maybe not what you signed up initially for in VBS when you were like eight years old, right? right? And this reveals three important truths about our faith that we can't overlook. Number one, God allows and God even ordains persecution of believers for the accomplishment of His plan. Remember we say we believe in a sovereign Lord. The plan to glorify Himself by rescuing sinners through the gospel. God not only knows persecution is coming, but allows it and ordains it because it accomplishes His will. He has a will and a plan for all of history, and that's part of it. We need to come to terms and accept that. Number two, this reveals to us that the Christian life is not just about living a pain-free, problem-free life as promised by the prosperity gospel. The Christian life is about what Jesus said. And if you're going to be my disciple, then you need to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. The Christian life is about joy. And I want you to hear me. Unending joy. The Christian life is about beauty. Like I would not trade anything in the world for my ability to follow Christ. Right? There's great joy to be for sure. But it's also a call to endure suffering for the cause of Christ. Number three, Jesus' word reveals the purpose of witnessing. He said, you're to bear witness to them. I want, you to, I want you to see how this is worded, that you're to bear witness to them. Notice he doesn't say that you're to convert them. Understand, these, these men witnessed to religious leaders and governmental leaders, and they witnessed to everyone that they came in contact with, and everyone who came against them, even Paul, witnessed to the people, his prison guards, remember? But you got to realize, not every one of them got converted. We need to see that the call is to bear witness. That is what we're called to faithfully do. Whether people believe or don't believe wasn't up to the disciples and it's not up to you. And understand, witnessing always accomplishes something. This is something I think we forget. Witnessing always accomplishes something. Either accomplishes someone turning to God in faith and repentance, which we pray for and hope for, but it also accomplishes, for those who don't, that it, becomes, it bears witness against them when they stand before God, when they say, I didn't hear the gospel. It's a witness against them. It either converts them or bears testimony against them. Our witnessing, right, the disciples' witnessing always accomplishes something. And either way, God's plan and his will is accomplished. And remember, the goal the goal is worldwide evangelism, not worldwide conversion. And I say that again, that might sound weird, right? But you have to understand, if that's the goal, then we're going to fail, right? Because the Apostle Paul, 
couldn't change the governor's hearts. If he can't, then you can't. Can we just agree on that? If Peter couldn't change the heart of the high priest, then neither can you. The call is to be a witness of Christ, a living witness no matter what the circumstances are. The call is to bear witness to the gospel, even in the worst of circumstances. When the government comes against us, when the religious leaders denounce us and call us bigots, when the woke mob protests us and the rioters threaten to burn down our community, the call is still the same, that we lovingly and faithfully bear witness to the truth of Christ. That's what our call is. Our mission is always the same. Always the same. We sow the seed. We love the people. We pray that God would change their hard hearts. And we never give up on them until their last or our last breath. Right? And that goal is the same. Right? Even when they're torturing us. Even when they're persecuting us. Even when they're putting you to death. Even when, when some continue to reject the message of the gospel over and over and over again, we never stop bearing witness to the truth. We continue to sow the seed. We continue to love the people. We continue to pray before our sovereign, holy God. Change their heart, O Lord. And we never give up knowing that God is the God of miracles. We're called to be faithful to Christ and his mission. And even in the midst of the darkest of circumstances, we're to, we're to bear witness for his name's sake. And then Jesus says in verse 11, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you were to say. I must say whatever is given to you, given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And again, this was fulfilled when the apostles were arrested and tried. And this is certainly still an encouragement for us today, for us not to fear when those people who would persecute us for our faith, because God the Holy Spirit has promised to be with us and to guide us and to lead us. Now, there have been people in recent history who have suggested that this text uh, means that you don't have to actually prepare and you don't have to carefully get ready for teaching and preaching. In fact, I've even heard someone who called himself a pastor say, I never prepare for sermons. I just let the Holy Spirit speak through me. Right. As Tremper Longman says that this, in his commentary, this is actually irresponsible and egregious. Right. We are always encouraged, always encouraged by God to read the word, to study the word, to meditate on the word. If you just read it, you will find that that's the conclusion. And pastors and ministers and evangelists and anyone who would witness and anyone who would speak on behalf of God ought to be prepared through careful Bible study and careful Bible reading and careful prayer before the Lord. As Paul says to the, the young pastor Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, somebody who works in the word, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Brothers and sisters, that didn't come by accident in osmosis. That comes from being in the Word. What I want you to see is this persecution that Christ talks about doesn't just come at the hands of the strangers, though, that are around us. It also comes from those who, who they knew and love. It says, brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. 
we don't see quite that level of violence yet. But you'd have to ask yourself, why would, would loved ones put each other to death over the gospel? I mean, because in America, there's, there's this sense in the American church that, that just rejects the notion of God's justice and his wrath. There's something in the American church that wants to avoid the notion of, of God's absolute holiness and divine judgment. For many in the American church, it's always about love and always about unity and always about faith journeys. But there's never any talk about repentance or sin or holiness. But look what Jesus said. Brother will deliver brother over to death. These are close, personal relationships. Father's his child. I can't even imagine what kind of circumstances would create that. And children will rise against their parents and put them to death. If the message of the gospel were simply Jesus loves you and simply wants you to be happy, if the message of the gospel was simply just pray this prayer and Jesus will come into your heart and, and make all your problems go away, right? if that was the gospel, then family members wouldn't, wouldn't hand each other over to death if that was the gospel. Because it's not offensive. If the message of the gospel was this innocuous, the one that's preached by the American church, people would not be persecuting each other. Because this is not a message that's offensive to the world. It's not. The message of the gospel, the one in the Bible, is offensive, as Paul says. The message of the gospel is God is holy and righteous and just and completely perfect in all things. That he is love and he is wrath. That he is grace and he is justice. And that he created all things in the universe, including you, and he created you to have a relationship with him. But because of your sin, you have become an enemy of God. That's the gospel. You were totally depraved, and the only good that you can do is the good that by God's grace that he allows you to do because he's restraining you from becoming as evil as you can be. The gospel is you were evil, craving evil, and you would do horrific things if God didn't restrain you through society and through family and through the law. I mean, come on, we all know, or we've been asked, what would you do if you didn't get caught? We know the answer to those questions. And because of that, you've been in an open rebellion against a holy and righteous God, which means the only thing that God owes you is his justice. You deserve nothing from God except his wrath and his judgment. That is what you have earned by your life and your own efforts. And if you die in your sin, you will face God and he will judge you and pour out his awful and terrible wrath upon you and all of creation will not cry for you. They will not weep for you. All of creation will stand in celebration that, that you have received justice. Creation will celebrate that it has been rid of you. That's how good of a person you are on your own. And to make things worse, you can't do anything to fix it. You can't be kind enough, you can't give enough, you can't feel guilty enough, you can't apologize enough, you can't, you can't try hard enough to overcome the rebellion that you have against God, which means ultimately you're hopeless on your own. A hopeless, wretched sinner waiting for God's justice to fall upon you with no way out. That's the bad news. And that's the bad news that everybody hates. That's the bad news that makes them want to kill you. That's the bad news that, must, that we must come to terms with. That's the bad news, right, that, that, that really 
The gospel doesn't make sense unless you understand that. The world must embrace the bad news about who we really are. Then the good news makes sense. And the good news is this, that God from eternity past had a plan and that he would send his son, God the Son, into the world to become fully man. And while on earth as a man, he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. And he obeyed a law and fulfilled a law that you couldn't fulfill. Which means he earned a righteous standing before the Father that you would never be able to earn in all of your best days. And then in the greatest act of grace and the greatest act of love, Jesus Christ allowed himself to be persecuted by the religious leaders and persecuted by the government and then handed over and betrayed by one who was like a brother to him, who betrayed him to his death. See, Jesus never calls us to do something that he didn't do himself. And Christ was tortured and beaten and nailed to the cross on Calvary. And on that cross, the most scandalous exchange in all of history took place. Jesus Christ took upon himself all of your sins as if they were, your, as if they were his own. And then in your place, he bore in his body the awful and terrible wrath of God that we deserve. And he died in your place. But that's only half of the equation. Because in return, by faith in Christ, Jesus gives to you his perfect, righteous standing before God. A righteousness that is alien to you. A righteousness not, that is not your own. Right? And he gives you this righteousness so that you can stand, not only washed of your sin, but that you are made perfect by this righteousness. So that you can now be reconciled back into relationship with God that you were created for. And that you can be adopted into God's family as one of his own children. To where you then have the ability to stand before him and say, Abba, Father, without fear. And if you were, and you were justified in God's sight because of Christ. And you were made new and given a new nature. And you're given a new life, an eternal life. A life that no one can ever take from you. A life that lasts forever and ever and ever. And this gift that Christ gives you, he purchased by his own blood, is a free offer, a free gift to you. All you need to do is accept it through repentance and faith. You repent and believe the gospel. You never earn it. You never deserve it. There are no rules for you to follow. There is no, there's no rituals that you must keep. You turn to Christ in faith and place all of your hope and all of your trust on him and him alone. And in that moment, in that moment, you are saved forever and ever and ever. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proving that he is God in the flesh and proving that he has the power to do what he promised to do, which is to save you from your sins. But before he went to heaven, he spent time with his disciples and he gave them a commission he said, finish the work that was started and to go in all the world and make disciples of all the nations. That is the mission that he called all believers to. That's the gospel. And hear me. The gospel is not try Jesus on like you try a pair, like a pair of new jeans. The gospel is not pray this prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. 
There's nothing so superstitious in all the Bible, by the way. The Bible commands us to confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and that we would be saved. Hear me. Our confession is Jesus is the Lord. Not Caesar. Not social media. Not your spouse. Even when he says submit to you. There's a lot of jokes about that. We can go on. Your sexual desire is not your Lord. Your appetite is not your Lord. Your hobbies are not your Lord. Your interests are not your Lord. The culture is not your Lord. BLM is not your Lord. The LGBT movement is not your Lord. The American government is not your Lord. There is only one Lord and one sovereign. He is Christ and we must submit to him above all other things. That's why the gospel is so deadly. Because when the government says, you must obey me first, we must say, no, Jesus is Lord. That's what the Romans did to the the Christians. When cultural comes to you and says, you must worship me and give what you say about the word of God, we must say, no, Jesus is Lord and he alone. And when the God of Molech comes to you or Planned Parenthood comes to you and says, you must support me and endorse me, we say, no. We worship no other God but Christ. And when the woke Marxists Marxists come with their fists in the air demanding that you raise their fists, your fists in alignment with them, and when they demand that you kneel in submission to their ideology, you still say, no, Jesus and he alone is my sovereign. That's why the gospel is so dangerous. Because Christ is not calling us to live better versions of our existing lives. He's calling us to live radically transformed lives. Because we've been radically transformed by his grace. You see, the gospel doesn't divide because people because it's simply about God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel brings persecution because the message of God, the message is that God paid it all and set you free. So repent and believe the gospel and receive him, not just as your savior, but as your sovereign Lord. The gospel will always bring persecution because it demands that Jesus become our all. The gift is free, but it costs you your everything. Notice Jesus says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. We are back now at the promise that we started with. The disciples will be hated by all. And they will be hated by their culture. They'll be hated by the governing authorities. They'll be hated by their friends and their family. And this, by the way, came true for them. We know. One of the most interesting books you might ever want to read is the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You'll find out what happened to them. I say that is because they're in glory now and they were probably then they were then they're, they're they're glad that they were able to suffer for the cause of Christ. But it also has future fulfillment for us. There's a point in our own culture where we're being told to compromise and we were told to submit and to bow down to other so-called lords. And the call is coming from the American church. The call is coming from our culture. The call is coming from our governments and our neighbors and even our family members and friends. And we're told that we need to compromise in the name of love, 
You need to compromise in the name of peace. You need to compromise in the name of public safety, which is the most dangerous now, I would say, standard or, um, yeah, standard would be a good way to say that. The most dangerous standard of our time. We're told to, become, to, to, to uh, compromise in the name of critical theory and, and even in the name of twisting scripture like love your neighbor. By the way, that's probably fast becoming the most twisted scripture in our time, along with judge not lest you be judged. And we will continue to face censorship. We will continue to face being canceled and being called hateful names. And we may even be po- uh, protested against. People may even assault us. There might even come a time where some of us get arrested. These are very real possibilities. By the way, the deacons and I've had this conversation multiple times over the last several months. They may even come time when people violently come against us to take our lives. But what we have to understand is we have one Lord and to him we owe our allegiance and him alone. And we never ever allow ourselves to become ashamed of him or ashamed of his word. It is he that we obey. And we're to finish the work that he called us to, even if it means we have to witness to those who harm us. This is the definition, by the way, of what it means to love your enemies. See, these things that Jesus says aren't in isolation. They all come to the same point. Loving your enemies means that you will have enemies that will try to harm you, and you still got to love them. And we are to persevere in faith to the end, no matter how hard things get. Because notice what Jesus said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The real measure of your faith is this. Will you follow Jesus in the dark? As we began last week, it's easy to praise the Lord when the sun is shining. It's easy to follow Jesus when, it's, when everything is good and everybody loves you. But what about when the world is against you? What about when even those that you love threaten to harm you? What about when the government says that you can't worship God? Will you follow him then? Will you stand upon the foundation of his word? Will, you find, will, will he find you faithful, witnessing even then? And if you ever question in your heart, why would God call us to live this way? Why would God call us to suffering? Why would God allow us to be persecuted? Remember, God, in his grace, was pleased to crush his own son to set us free. In fact, as the hymn writer wrote, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That is our hope. Now, brothers and sisters, let me wrap up with this. The world isn't always filled full of persecution. There are many times of great joy that we get to have as we worship the Lord together. One of the greatest joys I have is that I can share, I can share a verse of a hymn like in Christ alone and that almost everybody that I know on my social media feed will like that and share that because there's a hope that we all come to that Christ Jesus is the one who, who, who set us free that he is our hope 
and that the message is beginning to reach the lost, even when you don't think it is. I have a cousin that, that, that I grew up with who knows a lot about me, a lot of bad stuff about me. We did a lot of bad stuff together. He called me the other day and said, I need, I need the Lord, but I have nowhere to begin. And I was able to preach the gospel to him. And then he asked me, what did God do to you? And I was able to tell him the story about how God rescued me, a jerk like me. And suddenly I hear and I can see that the word of God has taken, taken, taken hold in him. And I was able to point him to a Bible-believing church. And I'm praying that, that he made it to church this morning. But I'm saying, I'm telling you, the seeds that you plant, you might not see them all come to fruition, but it is, it is taking root in the lives and hearts of people. God is at work in places you can't see. What we are called to do more than ever is to trust in him. The problem is, is when things are good, it seems like we got it under control, that it's all us. But it's in the darkness we realize how dependent we are upon him. So don't despair in the coming darkness, brothers and sisters. Rejoice that we have an opportunity and I mean this sincerely, rejoice that we have an opportunity to share the hope and the love of Christ with people who might not otherwise ever get to hear about it. As Paul got to save and witness to his, his prison guards who came to faith in Christ. No one knows who you can reach in the darkness that comes upon us. And even this, we should rejoice. Let's pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.